Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Lots of laughing this morning. All right. It is such a blessing to gather not only to worship Christ our King, but a special measure of thanks for the gift of our mothers today as well. On this Mother's Day, we have the joy not only of heaping love upon such a special person, of letting them know how much they mean, but for the Christian, Mother's Day is more special still. Regardless of age, even if she has since passed on, Mother's Day is a time for believers to reflect upon the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives through this very special person. Now, I pray we have all been blessed with godly mothers, but even if not, even with all of the imperfections we have, God has used our mothers intricately to be a force in bringing us to Christ, and for many of us, spurring us on in our walk as well. You know, the great theologian John Wesley said, quote, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than I did from all the theologians in England. What an impact they have on our lives. I know that we have some young stay-at-home moms in our church family who faced down 20 loads of laundry this week. You just did the dishes and the sink is full again. You can feel like a treadmill that never ends. Some days wondering what the point is of some of the things we have to do. Well, I was considering Jeremiah's. He was having a particularly hard day as well when he wrote the book Lamentations. And in the midst of those challenges, Jeremiah spoke truth to himself. He didn't tell himself what he felt. He didn't take counsel of his fears or his discouragements, though they were many. He proclaimed what he knew to be true. Jeremiah cried out, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. In the midst of whatever season of motherhood you find yourself in, they all carry unique challenges. But his loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. While many of us aren't moms in here, we all have a mom, a mom given to us by God. God has sovereignly placed us in the family he has for a reason. Even in hardship, God has used our mothers to shape and to spur us on toward godliness. So we thank the Lord for our mothers. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we embark on part three of our series titled, The Last Shall Be First. Christ teaches on humility. This will be completing our series. I pray it has been sanctifying and a blessing to you. Looking forward, we still have nine incredibly challenging verses to wade through to finally complete chapter nine. It could be a long, hot summer. Well, by way of reminder, we are in a very unique time in the Gospel of Mark. As time grows short with his disciples, as we continue our march toward Calvary in only a few short months, Jesus has launched into a concentrated time of teaching and of instruction with his disciples, pouring into them as Jerusalem draws near. Now, our series began with verses 30 through 32 in part one, 
where Jesus began this time of deep teaching on humility by making what was known as a passion prediction. Indeed, what more fitting way to teach on humility than by pointing to the greatest demonstration of humility that will ever be. Verse 31 of chapter 9 read in part 1, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus would lay his life down in the greatest act of humility, the one through whom all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made, Jesus Christ, the God-man, entering into human history in perfect obedience to the Father and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, saving a people unto himself. The one who did no wrong, the spotless Lamb of God, living a life of perfect humility that we might have a positive righteousness credited to us. And indeed, we need the humility of Christ credited to our account because ours cannot be perfect. No, humility is a very strange commodity. The moment you think you have it, you've already lost it. That or we seek after it only to be admired for having it. And there it flies away again, doesn't it? Every virtue on this side of eternity, though we are to strive for it, though we, though we are to walk in it, though we are to seek the Lord to grow in it, it's going to be tainted on this side of heaven. That's why we need the perfect humility of Christ applied to our lives. And this is where we began our journey through humility, with a passion prediction from Christ. The highest act of humility, the ultimate act to deal with our ultimate problem, that of our sin. And yet, we were reminded that through the most humble act ever conceived, it made possible the most humbling force in the known universe, that of grace. Grace is the most humbling force we can encounter to receive the unmerited favor of God on our lives, to be beggars having received bread, to be criminals set free, to have our eyes open to the miracle of grace is the most humbling force we have given to us. The recognition of that grace on our lives is the golden key to authentic humility. What claim does a pauper have who has been invited in to dine with the king? Nothing. What flows from that person is a true and an abiding gratefulness. It isn't a humility that needs mustering up. We live with the gift of grace ever before us. We live as debtors to mercy. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, he wrote, quote, Young Christians think themselves little. Growing Christians think themselves nothing. Full-grown Christians think themselves less than nothing. Close quote. And yet the rich and beautiful irony of John Newton's statement reflects that without grace itself, we would not even know that we are less than nothing. The very knowledge that we are nothing is itself a gift. It's all of grace. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, To be nothing is ours by nature. But to know that we are nothing and confess that we are nothing is a gift of his grace. Close quote. Beloved, the path of humility is not an option for the Christian. 
It's a necessity and an outworking of grasping the grace of God on our lives. God will have humility in his children. The only question is how painful it's going to be. Whether we will be humble or whether we will be humbled. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, the prophet Micah declares. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That precious promise from Paul to the Philippians that God will complete the good work he started in us can be a painful promise. He's going to finish it. Be humble or be humbled. Easy way or the hard way. Either way, we're headed to the station, dear Christian. Part two of our series last week gave way to an astounding scene, verses 33 through 37. It found us back in Galilee, back in Capernaum, Jesus HQ, back in likely what was Peter's home in verse 33, with an exchange that were it not for our our own sense of our fallenness and sin would cause us to shake our head at the disciples. There in this house, having walked back from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? And Jesus, of course, asking a question he already knew the answer to. Indeed, the question was, one, was not for Jesus' benefit, but for the disciples' benefit, to stir their conscience. And their response was astounding. What did they say? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was greatest. Like a child caught stealing a cookie, behold the wordless confession of their guilt. Their mouth had been stopped. What could you possibly say when the master has you dead to rights? Nothing, nothing. But Mark writes this in such a way for us to see the incredible contrast. What is the immediate context of this verse right before it? The son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Here's my humility, Jesus says. Here's my humiliation. Now fast forward to the next verse. And they argued which one of them was the greatest. Do we see that? While Christ is focused on humiliation, their eyes are on exaltation. He's just told them, I'm going to be killed while you're busy jockeying for position. It was a shame that stopped the mouse. They kept silent. How foolish we must sound, they thought. What pause ought that to give us, beloved? That those who walked and talked and ate and slept with Jesus could still be so engrossed in self and so misguided in their theology of Messiah who he would be, what he came to do. That should strike great humility in us as we run our race of grace, taking heed as well, lest we fall. So we did a deep dive last week as well into what caused this contentious argument among the disciples in the first place. And given our context, we knew with great certainty what caused the debate. Three of the disciples among them had been given quite the privileges lately. Peter, James, and John were continually receiving honors that the others were not. And most recently, they were the only ones to go up with Jesus for the transfiguration. They were always getting the special goods. It was beginning to seem that a pecking order was being established. And to make matters worse, Jesus commanded them, Peter, James, and John, not to tell anyone what had happened up on the mountain until he had risen. 
that, of course, would only inflame the jealousy even more. And sadly, we saw the disciples fall for one of the enemy's greatest lies, a lie that is at the heart and at the root of nearly every sin we commit, the lie that God is holding out on you, that there's something better than what you have out there, and God is keeping it from you. God's holding out on you, playing on your pride. You deserve so much more than you have. I'm not content to be a slave of Christ. I am not content to be last among the disciples. Why do Peter, James, and John get all the privilege? Of course, the heart of that is pride. The antidote is humility. Humility to know that I am nothing outside of Christ. I deserve death and hell, yet I've been given life eternal. I'm owed nothing. No, the wages, the payment for my sin was death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When that truth is ever before us, true humility can take hold. Humility that is willing to be last. Humility that is willing to serve. And yet we were reminded how, much very, how very much status and rank and position-oriented society was in ancient Israel. You knew your place. And you did not leave that place. Whether it be a woman or a child, with wealth or without wealth, there were lines all over the place, and you did not color outside of them. And that means if the lines are being drawn here, the disciples wanted theirs to fall in favorable places. Foolishly thinking that their perceived earthly position would be their position in Messiah's kingdom. Who's going to get to sit at your right and left hand? In fact, we would later even see James and John send their mother in, right, to ask for just such a thing in Matthew 20, 21. And Jesus sits them down in our text, verse 35, last week, and says, you've got it all wrong. In the kingdom of God, down is up and up is down. He called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Turns out that while the disciples are arguing about who's greatest, they had no idea what true greatness was. What it is that makes a man or a woman great in the kingdom of heaven. They define greatness as their culture defined greatness. How their pride defined greatness. That's not God's kingdom. That's our kingdom. And we love to spend our efforts and our time building that kingdom and protecting that kingdom. Yet none of that will stand when it's tested with fire. The great line from C.T. Studd, Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All else will be burned away as the dross. Success in the Christian life is not going to look like success to the world. It does not result in applause from the crowd. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. By quick way of reminder, we looked at two things that were required for this godly humility that's fueled by grace to take hold in our lives. First, we remind ourselves that this is not our reward. This is not our reward. It's a lot easier to be last. It's a lot easier to be servant of all when you're not busy trying to make heaven on earth. When you're not building your empire and your kingdom in the here and now. We cease striving to build our kingdom, whatever that looks like, and it becomes a lot easier to be last and servant of all. 
making the wise exchange. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Second is to think rightly of ourselves. That was the best definition of humility Spurgeon said he had ever heard, to think rightly of ourselves. Paul exhorts the church in Rome, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let us see ourselves as we actually are. One that if Christ did not place the treasure of the gospel in this earthen vessel, which is you and I, we would be a common clay pot. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Christ, for reasons that are beyond comprehension to our minds, has placed a treasure the treasure of the gospel into this earthen vessel, taking something that is common and making it priceless. Some of you may recall that we began our series on humility talking about its antithesis, what is known as the self-esteem movement, which was spawned out of the San Francisco culture of the 1960s, claiming that more self-love, that feeling better about yourself was the cure to the sorrows of our day. And of course, we know that the Bible does not declare that our problems revolve around not loving ourselves enough. In fact, that's anti-Christ. That is anti-gospel. There is a biblical self-esteem, if we may call it that. A real self-esteem. And it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We put no confidence in the flesh. We are lowly and wretched, but Christ in us, the precious jewel and gem of the gospel, has been placed in us. And now, purchased with the blood of Christ, we possess this treasure. That's true humility. That knows the source of its worth. It knows the source of it. We love to sing the song, yet not I, but Christ in me. That is something to hold on to. In a world that is drowning in sorrow, Scripture holds the key. And that key is a person, Jesus Christ. This wonderfully and simultaneously yields such humility. Seeing that we were saved from the grace, seeing what we were saved from, the grace on our life, and yet living in full confidence that we have placed within us the precious treasure of the gospel that we have been called and collected as the church, that we have been elect from the foundation of the earth, there's some real self-esteem. That's self-esteem, not the counterfeit of the world. And finally, verses 36 and 37 from part two, after utterly flipping their worldview on its head, the last shall be first. He gives them a living illustration. He puts his arm around a child there, probably Peter's child. And he uses a child in teaching humility. And not because of a child's humility, per se, but because of a child's size and because of their significance. Remember, beloved, children were quite insignificant in ancient Israel. They viewed children very differently. Today, some parents tend to worship their children, right? They give them everything. They, they pine over them. They dote on them. It was very different back then. Child mortality was very high. You almost didn't get too attached. And Jesus is using this as a picture. 
What accomplishment has a child for the world? Nothing. What has a child done that makes the world stand up and applaud? Not a thing. We mentioned that children this age would not even be taught the Torah because they, were consider- they weren't considered worth the time. Thus, Jesus is asking them, are you willing to be thought worthless by the world like this child? Are you willing to be considered not worth the time by the most important people, even by the religious crowd like this child? Now you're getting close to the kingdom. Now you're getting close. Your worth, that treasure that is placed in you is not something that the world will value or applaud. And yet there is nothing of greater value. Do we see the beauty of the humility and the worth of it all in one beautiful gospel package? I hope we are struck by its beauty, that we behold its beauty. So with that, let's continue with our text this morning. We're in Mark 9, beginning with verses 38 through 41. Mark 9, 38 through 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this series on humility, Lord, we are humbled. Lord, as we look toward the truth that's contained in the scripture, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would wield it. We ask that you would cause it to pierce between the joint and bone, that it would pierce the heart, that it would do the work that only your word and your spirit can accomplish. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, this text takes some real piecing together here to draw out what's going on. Not only in the minds of the disciples, but John in particular. So let's dive right into our text here. Verse 38. Verse 38. <coughs> Excuse me. John said to him, teacher. Now pause there for a moment. And we see the apostle John speaking. All right. What do we know about John? He was Benerges, yes? He was a son of thunder. More accurately translated in Arabic, he was a son of agitation. He was a son of anger. John was a hothead when Jesus met him, along with his brother James. So much so that Jesus nicknamed him based on his worst trait. But John is a man whose heart is being changed rapidly. He's going from being a son of agitation to being the disciple of love. So we know that he was passionate. He was sensitive. John is someone who is undergoing a transition from being an angry person to a loving person. Going from being defined as a hothead to being defined by his love and his sensitivity. That's John. That's the process he's undergoing right now. 
And we camp on that for a moment because this is the only place in Mark where John is mentioned by name. So we know Mark wants us to see this. He wants us to make all of these connections. Otherwise, he, he just could have wrote, one of the disciples said, right? But here, John is named in the only place. So like all of us, John is in a process of sanctification. But as we'll see in our text today, he's not there yet. I think we can all relate. Let's see what John says. Back to our text. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. Oh, boy. <laughs> there are so many matters of the heart going on in this simple statement. All right, well, first to set our scene. This is not something that is happening in the present. John is recalling this scene. This has happened in the past. He witnessed this. And that's critical because we need to read John's statement as being in response to the lesson that Jesus just laid down in the previous verses. Some of you look down at your Bible, you'll see a break in your Bible at verse 38, starting a new section. Be careful with those. It can make you disconnect the context in your mind when they are one scene. John's statement is in direct response to Jesus' lesson on being great in the kingdom of God. What does humility look like in the kingdom of God? Jesus squeezed his disciples with this hard statement. And this is what came out. A statement so memorable by John that Mark just has to record it by name. Something has John very sensitive about this man casting out demons. His statement is dripping with pride and exclusivity. What's driving this? Well, first deal with the event, then we'll deal with the heart. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. Why so sensitive here? What's under John's skin? What's stuck in his craw? We don't have to look very far to find out at all. Look down in your Bibles just a few verses back in Mark 9, starting at verse 17. Here, look at Mark 9, starting with 17. This is very recent to our text today. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Ouch. That is a rebuke you won't soon forget. If you're a hothead or you're full of pride, you definitely won't forget. Now skip down to verse 28. After Jesus has healed the boy, verse 28 and when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? Damaged pride. Oh, no. You can go back and listen to these verses preached in our series on Mark, but you'll remember that this was a harsh rebuke directed at the disciples. But what made this rebuke back in verse 19 such a blow to them? What are the disciples foolishly trying to do right now? Right now. Look at your own Bibles, verse 34. And they argued which of them was the greatest. They're trying to establish dominance. They're trying to get to the top of the pecking order. They're trying to impress the master. 
And their ego took a huge blow back in verse 17 and on. And Benerges, John, son of thunder, is trying to get back on top by currying favor with Jesus. But his statement betrays his heart. Look closer. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. The last thing you want when trying to establish a pecking order is another rooster in the hen house. Right? Not only another rooster, but one who is doing what you, just a few verses earlier, could not do. Is John concerned for the purity of the gospel and Jesus' holy name here? Or was he trying to build his own kingdom? Was he trying to patch up a damaged ego? Was he trying to score points? Now, on the surface, what John is saying may sound magnanimous. I'm watching out for you, Lord. But what we find is that spiritual pride had kept in, crept in. A special, exclusive club has been formed, and we're the gatekeepers of it. Let me show the master how I was watching out for him. Now, John's statement is largely self-serving. He's putting on airs. He's being elitist. Humility is nowhere in the picture. And we will find that pride in the life of the believer will expose you to deception. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. John is not only self-serving, but his elitism and his pride has deluded him as well. Look at the last part of our verse. Because he was not following who? Us. Us. We are the ones who have been commissioned. We are the ones that you sent out and gave authority over the demonic. We are the card-carrying members of the club. That's our identity. We are special. It would be like having what you thought was the greatest, most unique and valuable article of clothing in the world. Like nothing else in the world. No one else had it. It was presented to you in this, this grand ceremony and the king commissioned the piece with his scepter. And you go down to the Kroger and there's some guy wearing one. Right? Like, who's this guy? You can't wear that. You weren't at the ceremony. You don't know the specialness of it. Take it off right now. You defile it. Their pride is injured. Where they had previously failed, one who isn't even part of the inner club is succeeding. John cared more about his position and building his kingdom. He wanted his reward now. He wanted status and prestige. He wanted his elite club to stay elite. Speaking for myself, we are a thick-headed people. None of these rebukes had yet cured John of being a son of anger and agitation. In fact, if we look to Luke's very account of our text today, in the very scene, this very scene in Luke 10, beginning at verse 52, no need to turn there, I'll read it for us. This is the same scene from Luke. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, who, James and John, saw this, here comes Benerges. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? John is a work in progress, like all of us. Yet we will find that it is often the hotheads who come more quickly and willingly to a true godly humility. Because there is such thing as a false humility. And you see it in a few different forms. The first is someone who withdraws. They stay quiet. They may be sulk. Ah, don't worry about me. I don't need anything. 
I'll just sit here on this bench and watch the world go by. You all go ahead out to dinner. I'll just eat some cardboard I have left over. That's not humility. That's the opposite of humility. The goal of that first one is to have people pay attention to who? To feel bad for who? Who is at the center of this person wallowing in self-pity? Themselves. It's been, well, it's, it's been well said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The same goes for those who tend to be timid in life. Timid people are often thought to be humble. Oh, she's just quiet as a church mouse. So humble. Oh, I don't think I could do that. I'm not strong enough for that. Oh, she's so much smarter than me. To be humble is to forget yourself your strengths, and your weaknesses. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So if someone constantly recalls their weaknesses, making them timid, who are they still focused on? Themselves. That's not humility. As deferential as it might sound. People often associate being puffed up and haughty as not being humble. But I will tell you that the one who focuses and dwells on their inability and on their weaknesses, or they dwell in self-pity, have a far more sinister form of pride. It's covert. They can be mistaken for humility to an onlooking world. So whether it's positive or negative toward ourself, if it's self-centric, it's pride. Back to our text. We don't know anything about this man who is doing these exorcisms that has John in a tizzy. But this does tell us that they were, there were genuine followers of Christ, besides the disciples. And we're near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He had preached and performed miracles far and wide at this point. There were followers of Christ. What a shock. It appears to be. But now look at the patient response of Jesus to John. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Even seeing the pride in his heart, the self-serving of his heart, the elitism, the delusion that accompanied that pride, Jesus is patient in his response. Look with me to verse 39. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus is saying that this man is legitimate. He is a follower of me. And beloved, we should thank the Lord for this man whose name we do not know. This is a demonstration of someone being able to be a follower of Christ without physically following Christ. I.e., that's you and I. Back then, if you were a follower of someone, that meant you what? You followed them. You were to be with them. Like the disciples, this is new. He may not have had the secret handshake, but he is a follower of me. He may not do it how you do it or look like you look, but he's a follower of me. The proof is in the fruit. He was performing exorcisms and Jesus acknowledges them. In fact, Jesus here calls it a what? A miracle. An exorcism is a miracle. No time to delve into the theology of that. We've spoken on that quite a few times before. But Christ sums it up in verse 40. Verse 40. Many know this saying of our Lord. Mark 9, verse 40. For he who is not against us is for us. 
Well, what does this have to do with humility? It has everything to do with humility. One theologian notes, quote, This verse means that there is no competition between believers. If we preach the same gospel, we preach the same gospel. Oh, could the American church take a dose of this? This isn't a call to abandon discernment, not in the least. It is far better to be divided in truth than united in error. No doubt. But how many splits and divisions do we see amongst fellow brothers? This should not be. Just because they have red carpet and we have green carpet. We sing this way, they sing that way, and on and on. If we could look back over church history and see the minutiae that churches fractured over, it's a shameful black eye to the body. Jesus said this should not be amongst believers. This man performing these exorcisms is a believer of me, a follower of me. Just because he's not in our daily club doesn't mean we rain on his parade. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And again, we are not talking about compromise of any sort. We stand firm on all matters of doctrine and theology. And we contend vigorously for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We declare biblical truth with no apology. But some are going to look different from us. Some are not going to be in your specific club. Love them. Encourage them. To quote Augustine, quote, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. How we treat others, believers, is how we treat Christ. Deal kindly. Deal charitably. Never are we more unlike Christ than when we put on an air of elitism or superiority, as John does here. And the disciples were going to need to grasp this truth as the church age would dawn at Pentecost. We will need to walk in great humility toward one another, honoring one another if we will all be under the same banner of truth. And Paul faced similar issues in his ministry. People who were outside of the club preaching Christ. Yet look at Paul's response here in Philippians. I'll read it to you. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim it out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. There's the heart we're going for. Our aim and our focus is not our kingdom. It is his. Let the gospel be proclaimed. Paul is, in a very real sense here, expanding upon Jesus' very words and sentiment. But for all the talk of unity and how wonderful it is and how we strive for it, make no mistake, Jesus has dropped a bomb here in verse 40. What other powerful implication, what doctrinal truth do we see floating on the top of Jesus' statement here in verse 40? Just ripe for the picking. For he who is not against us is for us. What don't we see as an option here? There is no middle road. There is no neutral ground. You are in or you are out. 
If you're not against us, you're for us. And just as true, if you're not for us, you're against us. Both require volition. Both are an active choice. There is no middle ground. There is no one in the world who has the capacity for thought and for volition, who knows the claims of Christ, who is neutral toward the person of Jesus Christ. No one. It's not possible. His very claim of divinity, his very claim of exclusivity, that there's no other way to the Father but through me, demands a choice. In that moment, demands a choice. Neutrality is not an option. As we sit here this morning, there is not a neutral person listening. Not one. You're for him or you're against him. You might say, I'm not against him. I've just never been that religious. Or I'm not against him. I just don't care. I hear that one. Any response to Christ, beloved, but that of repentance and faith is to set yourself as hostile to the creator of the universe. Or worse yet, to strive to carve out a gray middle road, supposing yourself some kind of neutral non-combatant also sets you against the king of kings. Do not be deceived. There is no middle road. You are in or you are out. You are for Christ or you are against Christ. These are his words. There are only two categories of persons in the world. Every person you know, every one of them, is either lost or saved. Every person, no exception. No one lives in the middle. No one is neutral. People try to live in the middle, especially here in the buckle of the Bible belt. But that is where the yawning and the gaping jaws of hell consume the most. Those who have quietly chosen the pleasures of this life, even living a moral life, over surrendering their lives to Christ, over heeding the command to repentance. Beloved, never once in Scripture does Jesus, John the Baptist, any apostle ever invite someone to repent. No, the call to repentance is a command. It's given in the imperative. Jesus does not invite us to repent. He commands it. He made us. He owns us. He makes the rules. To not come in repentance and faith is to disregard a lawful command from the very highest authority. And we must understand this, lest someone think hell an unreasonable response to our treason. But praise God who caused us to be born again to a living hope. We deserve death. He gave us life, undeserved. That's grace, the divine fuel of humility. Final verse, verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Just as the Lord resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And there is great reward in great humility, even in the smallest act. Particularly, we see here, even to those of the household of faith. Particularly, those to the household of faith. To those who are of Christ, great is our reward. And we walk in deference and love toward one another, not thinking less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. 
Humility, beloved, is a lowliness of mind. It is a disposition of the mind and the heart without which we cannot come to Christ. We cannot live for Christ. We cannot be exalted with Christ. Yet we know that humility of the heart is first the work of the Holy Spirit. It is first the work of a sovereign God. We cannot get there without him. That biblical humility is alien and it is foreign to us. We need Christ to do a work. And today can be that day. That the love of God be shed abroad in your heart. That you become a recipient of grace through repentance and faith. Giving you a true humility that allows you to rejoice in being last. To serve with joy. I have news for you. That's not natural. That's a work of God in his children. As they reflect on his majesty. As they reflect a life of praise to such a good God. Let us walk in true humility toward God, toward one another, and toward an unbelieving world, that they might see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled. We are humbled, Lord, firstly, because you have given us the ultimate example. Lord, you committed no wrong, nor was any sin found in you. And you laid down your life in the ultimate act of humility. Lord, that we might follow in your ways, that we might know your word. Lord, we ask for a humility of heart. We ask for a gentleness of spirit. Lord, not a false humility that is weak and timid, but a godly humility. Lord, that is fueled by grace, the unmerited favor of God in our lives. We ask, Holy Spirit, that as we finish this series of Scripture, that you would cause it to be sealed in our hearts, that you would bring it to remembrance as we need. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.